0: We're in an important uh, sports season right now. Who knows what's going on right now in the sporting world? NBA All-Star, NBA All-Star Game. Thank you, Brent. Uh, <laughs> what's the Olympics? No. Anyway. So we, we, often, we often historically in recent years in the Western world, in Canada, U.S. in particular, uh, treat church kind of like the Olympics or like an All-Star Game where there's a select few individuals that get picked to do ministry and everybody else gets to be a spectator. And I, I hope that you see uh, from the video that you just watched and, uh, and the importance of what we're going to hear this morning, that, the God, that God is calling the church into the game. God is calling the church into activity, that we need to move out of uh, this all-star Olympic kind of mentality and recognize that church is a game to be played that is for everyone. Um, and so we hope that you'll take that invitation. We hope as we move forward into the future that we'll see more people, more followers of Jesus activated in their gifts, in their passions, and participating in what God is doing among us. So that's part of what the series is about, the church I see. We, we kicked it off last week. We, talked about, we used the image of digging wells. And if you weren't here, um, maybe go back and listen to it. But, I'll, uh, but very briefly, uh, we used just this analogy uh, where Isaac in the Old Testament was digging old wells that his father, redigging old wells that his father had dug, that were refilled with dirt that the enemy had come and filled with dirt, and redigging uh, and digging new wells. And I believe that the future that God is calling us to is going to involve redigging some old wells and also digging some new ones, that there 's things that Sun West is going to continue to be about that we 've always been about. There's also things that we will be about that God is calling us to that might be new, that might be things that we haven't heard before. And I think even this morning, uh, you'll hear a mix of things you've heard me teach on before. Um, and hopefully there's also new elements of what that might look like uh, as we contextualize uh, what God is calling us to uh, for the future. So I was never much of a math guy. I, as I've mentioned many times from the stage, I failed grade 10 math with a whopping 38%. Uh, and even though I'm not good at math, I know that 38% is not a good number. Uh, it's, it's not what my parents were hoping and dreaming for. Um, but I do believe that I got enough math knowledge that I could say confidently that multiplication is greater than accumulation. Especially when I, when we consider the church uh, world, how, how God invites the church to function, that multiplication is greater than than accumulation. You know, I asked my kids uh, a few months ago, I said, you know, what would you rather if I gave you $100 a day for 30 days or if I gave you a cent every day and doubled the amount that you had every day? Sorry, I gave you a cent today and I'll double the amount that you have every day. Uh, Every one of my kids, without exception, said, I'll take the $100 a day, please, right? And my grade 10 self probably would have said that same thing. Uh, but if you follow the math through, $100 a day for 30 days, will, you'll end up with $3,000. You know, for a little seven-year-old kid, that's a lot of money. Uh, but if I doubled, if I multiplied by two every single day, starting with, a cent, with one cent, you would end up with $5,368,709 after 30 days. Multiplication is greater than accumulation. In the underground church in China, there's a truly remarkable story that has happened in this last decade. About the time when Mao Tse-sung took power and initiated the systematic purge of religion from society, the church in China, which was well-established and largely modeled on our Western forms due to the colonization that happened in China, was estimated to be about 2 million people. As part of this systematic persecution, Maoist banished all foreign missionaries and ministers, nationalized all church property, killed all the senior leaders, either killed or imprisoned all second and third level leaders, banned all public meetings of Christians with the threat of death and torture, and then proceeded to perpetrate one of the cruelest persecutions of Christians on historical record. The explicit aim of the Cultural Revolution was to obliterate Christianity and all religion from China. At the end of the reign of Mao and his system in the late 70s and the subsequent lifting of the so-called bamboo curtain in the early 80s, foreign missionaries went into China expecting to find very little, if any, Christianity there. On the contrary, they discovered that Christianity had flourished beyond all imagination. The estimates were about 60 million Christians in China and counting. And has grown significantly since then. And David Aikman, in his uh, book, Jesus in Beijing, estimates that there's probably as many as 80 million Christians now in China. If anything, the Chinese phenomenon we are witnessing is the most significant transformational Christian movement in history. And remember, not unlike the early church, these people had very few Bibles. They they actually only had uh, pages of scripture that they would transfer from one uh, small group to another. And so they shared these pages between house churches. They had no professional clergy, no official leadership structures, no central organization, no mass meetings, and yet they grew like crazy. How is this possible? How did they do it? There's been much writing and research done uh, around the church in China. Uh, one, one person in particular that I've heard talk about this many times is uh, he's a missional thinker uh, named Alan Hirsch. And so there's, lots of probably, there's probably lots of reasons why this explosion in China has happened. Uh, but I heard Alan Hirsch speak on this phenomenon probably about a decade ago. And, uh, and he used the concept of the starfish and the spider. Has anybody read The Starfish and the Spider? Okay. Brent. Okay, good. Uh, what about The Forgotten Ways? Alan Hirsch's book. Anybody read that? Okay. The Forgotten Ways is a very, uh, it's a very slow read. It's like cheesecake. You can, only, you can only read so much of it at a time. Um, but Alan Hirsch referred to this. It's actually a business book, The Starfish and the Spider. Uh, Take Unstopping the Power, The Unstoppable Power of Leaderless Organizations. And he took the, uh, the metaphor that was used in that book um, and that was written by Ori Brafman and Rod Beckstrom. So he took the ideas in that book, and he actually applied it as language for to help, under, to help us understand what was happening in China, but also to help us understand what needs to happen uh, in the world for Christianity to move into its destiny, for follower of Jesus to move into his destiny. And so the main concept is this, that when you cut the head off of a spider, it does what? It dies. Shocker. Uh, and so he, he said uh, basically that the, the Western world has basically developed a church uh, way of operating, an ecclesial system, if you will, where it is about that all-star, that Olympic idea where you have a select few people uh, doing things while everybody else watches, And for many reasons, the church in the West has been on slow decline for a long time. And he points to this idea of a spider being the reason why. Uh, But the starfish, on the other hand, if you cut a piece of a starfish off, what happens? It grows another starfish. Because the DNA of the whole starfish is within every single part of the starfish. So when you cut one, it multiplies into two. When you cut the two, it multiplies into four. And he would say that that is actually what happened in the church in China. In fact, a follower of Jesus or someone doesn't become a follower of Jesus without understanding and they have a saying in China that every church is a church planting church and every follower of Jesus is a church planter. So if you come to follow Jesus in China, there's a very real possibility and your understanding is that someday as a follower of Jesus, you will be asked to lead your own church. Every person has the DNA of what? of what God is trying to do in our world in them. And so under persecution, under poverty, when, uh, when all external signs point to the fact that the church should be declining and dying, it's, it's often in those environments, in those situations where the church is thriving. Because I believe that it's in those environments that the church actually has to grapple with what it truly is. And I believe along with Alan Hurst, the the DNA is in every Christ follower. The DNA of what God wants to do is in every Christ follower. And so let's go back, Genesis chapter 1. It says this in verse 26. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Rain over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. In the very beginning, physical reproduction was God's plan to populate the earth and bring his reign and rule over the earth. It was his strategy. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Govern it. reign over the earth. Multiplication is in is part of God's plan from the very beginning. We see this again in Genesis 22, 17. I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Like the stars in the sky and the sand and the seashore, your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed all because you have obeyed me. Multiplication. I believe that multiplication... Was God's plan in the beginning? And it's still God's plan today. Although how that contextually has worked itself out is changing. And it changed in the time of Jesus. As you know, in John chapter 1, it says this, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with the physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you would find story after story of God's people, uh, of, of couples that God had chosen to lead what he was doing in the world, that those couples, for whatever reason, were barren. They were not able to have children. And you'll see this theme over and over again through the Old Testament. Why is this so important is because God had a physical plan to multiply on the earth, to populate the earth through multiplication. And so reproduction was actually integral to what God wanted to do in our world. So this is the way that the Jews assumed that God was going to bring about his rule and reign on the earth. And religions like Islam still have a similar strategy today. We'll physically populate the earth through multiplication, through physical multiplication. The thing is that God... The plan of God hasn't changed in terms of multiplication, but the way of multiplication has changed. In John chapter 1 and throughout the New Testament, you see this phenomenon that happens where we're not talking about physical birth anymore. We're actually talking about spiritual birth. Over and over again in the New Testament, you will, you will, you'll find this concept of discipleship, this concept of multiplication this concept that it is no longer physical blood, no longer physical DNA that God is reproducing, but a spiritual DNA of God's people, not born from natural descent, but from spiritual descent. They're being reborn in the spirit. The reality is the only reason why almost all of you are in this room is because of this reality. I mean, I don't know all of you, um, I'm just curious, how many, how many would link their lineage back to Israel? Do we have any Jewish people here? Anybody? I don't see any hands. That's actually surprising. So if God wouldn't have changed his plan on how he was multiplying, you and I would not be here. Do you, do you understand that? That God was not interested in perpetuating an ethnicity. He was not interested in perpetuating a bloodline, but he was interested in perpetuating a spiritual lineage of children of God. Not born from natural descent, but from spiritual descent. Someone invited you to a new birth, new life, to follow Jesus, to receive forgiveness of sins and make him the Lord of your life. I remember very specifically for me, it was when I was eight years old. There was a man named Neil Klippenstein in a camp in southern Manitoba called Turtle Mountain Bible Camp. I attended when I was seven. Uh, Then I went back when I was eight. And when I was eight years old, I was on a one-on-one walk with my cabin leader, Neil Klippenstein. And uh, we went into the chapel and I felt just the the move of God and just my heart opening to God and wanting to be part of the family of God. And he invited me. He's like, would you want to make Jesus Lord of your life? And here's the fascinating thing that I didn't know at the time. Neil Klippenstein was a blood relative of mine. He was my dad's cousin. I didn't know that at the time. So my dad's cousin actually led me to a relationship with the Lord. But my my family connection with him had nothing to do with him being in my bloodline and everything to do with him being a child of God, inviting me through the grace of God to be in the family of God. Every one of us in this room, if you were a follower of Jesus, had that opportunity because God invited you into his family, not through a bloodline, but because uh, because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Because of Jesus' blood that was shed for you and I, we're allowed to be a part of the family of God. We get to be a part of the family of God. But the concept of reproduction and multiplication is still at the heart of what God is trying to do in our world. And this is actually the concept of discipleship. And discipleship kind of multiplication, discipleship, these, these kind of become buzzwords in Christian churches. And it's unfortunate because sometimes when things become buzzwords, we use the heart, we lose the heart of what they're actually about. But Matthew 28, which we looked at last week, last week, we talked about this being the earth in the window. The Apollo 13 reference where you know, they had limited resources, everything was chaotic, and what, did, what, what was the thing that they had to focus on in order to keep their alignment and the trajectory where they're supposed to be going? Uh, it was putting the earth in the window. And I said that Matthew 28, the Great Commission, along with the Great Commandment, is the earth in the window. That is the thing that aligns us. That is the thing that we are pouring our resources, our energy towards. And Matthew 28 brings to conclusion something that starts in Genesis 1, something that we read about. And the church doesn't begin with Acts 2, it begins with an understanding that we were all God's prototype of what God had in mind from the beginning to bring about the rule and reign of God. Genesis 12 is also important in understanding who we are as a church because God calls Abraham for all nations of the earth, and we're going to talk about that in future weeks. And so we, we read here in Matthew 28, you can, you can read along with me there. It says, Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Jesus came and told the disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize in them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all that I have commanded, uh, all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." There's so much in these few verses. You know, obviously, we see in the beginning that it starts with worship. Worship is to honor God with our lives, not to make us feel good or to be entertained or to hopefully God get God to meet my needs. But worship is about God. Worship is about making him famous. Worship is about acknowledging our, rela- our role in relation to him that we're sons and daughters of God, but we're under his authority. And so we give him the worship, the glory that he's due. And so we see the the disciples come to Jesus and they worship him. But there's also this encouraging piece that says some of them doubted. I don't know if you've ever had doubts in your relationship with God, but I've had plenty. And I wish I could say because of a pastor, I don't ever have any doubts, but that's that's just not true that the reality is that God uses us despite our doubts or maybe even because of our doubts. If we delay our alignment to God's mission until we don't have doubts, we will never participate in God's mission. You know, some of us are sitting on the bench or we're we're participating in this spectator sport called church because we actually have some doubts or some warts or some stuff going on in our lives. And we're like, I don't quite have it together enough to be a part of that. And I'm here to encourage you and say that If that was the case, Jesus would have never called anybody. And it's because of that that we need Jesus. It's because of that that we need a Savior. It's because of that that we need a Lord that is beyond ourselves. And so we willingly bow our knee knee to Jesus. And if you've got doubts, if you've got things in your life that you feel like you've had to hide, if you've got sin in your life that you know is separating you in relationship from others or from God... That's why they call it good news, because Jesus says that doesn't have to stop you anymore, that he can get rid of it, and then he can participate in what he is doing in the world. And all of this is based on the authority and the presence of Jesus, because Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That is the launch point for the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and the earth begins with Jesus. And he's given us his presence to the very end of the age. And so when we talk about the authority of the church, we miss the boat. It's actually not the authority of the church. It's the authority of Jesus in our world. And we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus as Lord. And so that lays the foundation for the great commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach Teach these new disciples to obey all that I've commanded and given you and be sure of this, I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is referred to, as I've said, the great commission, the great co-mission, the great partnership between God's people and God himself. And what's fascinating about this passage, and and I've taught about this in the past, but If we look at the imperatives, if we look at the commandments, how many do you see in the Great Commission? Some translations have a couple, some have three, some have four. You know, it says, therefore go, there's one, make disciples of all nations. Some have baptized, um, and so that's often a third one. And then we have teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. In the original language, in the Greek language that this was written, and there's actually only one command. There's only one imperative in the whole Great Commission. It's similar to my kids doing their chores. So my wife created this amazing chore chart, right? So um, she's like making these little disciples and it's it's amazing. Um, They get up every morning and they're like, they're like, did I do my chores this morning? And they, and they have to check off this uh, chart every single day, seven days a week. You know, like little things like, got, did I get dressed? Yep, got dressed. Check. Um, you know, with three boys, you gotta, you gotta break it down real fast. Did I brush my teeth? Uh, check. Take out the garbage. Check. You know, clean up this the playroom. Check. And so they, they have this, they have chores all through seven days of the week. Um, which is amazing for my kids. It's been terrible for me because the they start looking around. They're like, "Well, Dad, how come Dad doesn't clean? His clothes are out." Uh, and so they're starting to call me on my stuff. Um, but when we when we say, "Did you do your chores?" or we tell them, "Do your chores," what does that mean? Well, they go to the list. And they say, "Well, do my chores means this, this, and this," and they can check it off. Okay, yeah, I did my chores. But the Imperative, the commandment, the idea is to do your chores. All of the activities involved in that is part of what it means to do your chores. Does this this make sense? The one commandment, the only imperative in the Great Commission is make disciples. That's it. Make disciples. Go, baptize, teach. These are all participles. These are all a part of the imperative of what it means to make disciples. It's, it's on the chore list. You know, these are some of the activities we do, but the whole idea is that we're making disciples. A few clarifications. It doesn't actually say make disciples. It actually says disciple the nations, and we're going to talk about that in a couple Sundays, but just so you know, it's not as individualistic as we sometimes think. And discipling is the goal. Not going, not baptizing, not teaching. But it doesn't necessarily mean that those other things are unimportant or that we still don't have to do them. Disciple does not mean get conversions. If anything, baptize means that. People going from old life to new life. And that's what we're going to celebrate next week. Making disciples is not the second step. It's the whole thing. And when we talk about going... It doesn't necessarily mean go across the world, go on YOM, although it could mean that. What it does mean, though, is in your going. So as we look at the Work as Worship conference coming up on Friday, what, this is tapping into this idea that in your going, in your workplace, in your families, in the places you go to every day, whether you're a stay-at-home mom with your kids, whether you're going to Starbucks for an Americano every day, whether you're in the same office working with the same people every day, whether you're taking out your garbage and you're rubbing shoulders with your neighbor, whatever you're going, whatever your activity is day to day, God is saying that is the mission that I'm calling you to. In your going, make disciples. And what's fascinating is, you know, we can go. That's pretty easy. We can teach. We can all teach, we can baptize, but how do you make disciples? What's fascinating to me is the one thing that we're commanded to do in the Great Commission is the one thing that we cannot do apart from God. Do you see that? The one commandment that God has given us is something that we are completely incapable of apart from him. And so right there in the Great Commission is this non-negotiable piece of the great co-mission. We cannot disciple apart from God. It's only God that changes hearts. It's only God that is able to call people to himself. It's only God that can actually make somebody born again, bring somebody into the family of God. And so we're dependent on Jesus for the very mission that he's called us to do. There's seminars all over the place these days on church growth, how to grow your church, how to be, you know, all these different strategies, thinkings, writings, the books, there's books upon books upon books about how do you grow your church. And despite all the thinking, all the writing, all the conferences, the church in North America is not growing. Yet the church in North America is the one that's producing the most material on how to grow your own church. It's ironic, isn't it? In fact, there's a very amazing phenomenon happening in, uh, in Canada, particularly a, a church planting phenomenon. Uh, you know, C2C Church Planting Network, uh, which partners with the denominational family we're a part of, has uh, planted over 300 churches uh, in uh, multiple denominations. So really, really cool work that's being done. Yet, they will tell you that we cannot plant enough churches to keep up with the churches that are closing. There's more churches closing than there are churches being planted. And so I believe, and I'm going to explain this in a second, that we do not have a church planting problem. We have a discipleship problem. We don't need more churches. We actually need more disciples. You can plant churches and not have disciples, but you can't make disciples and not have churches. So here's a here's a bit of a chart that just kind of represents our nation. So we have we have a group that represents other religions. Uh got a group that I'm going to call secular. So this is uh people that that really um our world, our culture of the day is their religion, right? So they're they're just kind of in the stream, in the current of, uh, you know, the themes, the values, the ethics of culture. And then there's this category that I'm going to refer to as nominal Christianity. And nominal Christianity is, you know, the people where, you know, they would, might identify themselves in having alignment with Christian values, with Christian morals, they might come to Christmas Eve services. Uh, they might uh, show up at an Easter and, uh, you know, when there's a wedding or there's a funeral, uh, you know, there, there's a reson, they have some resonation with what is, uh, what is being expressed in terms of the Christian faith. Uh, but they're not necessarily active disciples, active followers of Jesus participating regularly in worship and in faith community. Uh, and then we would have a, a group at the bottom uh, that I just label Christianity, Disciples, Jesus Followers. And what's amazing is that this nominal group, has there's been an assumption in our current culture of Christian morality, Christian ethics, And there was a season in our country where churches could just grow by having the coolest, sexiest, most attractional thing out there because the assumption was that there was a nominal group that just kind of resonated with it. Okay, you guys follow me? So most of the energy in churches in the last couple of decades has been trying to get nominal Christians to become Christians trying to get people to rededicate their lives to church to attend more than just Christmas and Easter. But statistically, what is happening is that this nominal group is doing this. People are no longer, you know, there used to be this thought that, well, one day people return to church. One day people retur- will return to Christian faith. But that is actually not happening. More and more people are seeing Christianity as pro- part of the problem, not as part of the solution. That the, the secularization of our country is increasing with every passing year. And this is also why Christianity, uh, in comparison to the other religions at the top, is seen to be in competition with the cultural values Right? Because we are actually, in some ways, wrestling over this group of people that have been in this nominal category for a long time. Is this making sense? Secular is taking over nominal in Canada. And so to go back to this idea of reproduction, I would actually argue that the North American church has been barren for a while. That we've just had family members rotating to different family gatherings. We don't have a church planting problem. We have a discipleship problem. And so part of SunWest's heart historically has been to plant more churches. And that's an important part of who we are. And it's going to be an important part of who we continue to be. Yet church planting is the result Healthy church planting is the result of disciple making. Because if you have church planting without discipleship, it's division, not multiplication. You know, we had 10 people. I'm going to risk doing math here. Um, If we had 10 people and we said, hey, we're going to plant two churches, but we're not discipling anybody. Now we got five people at each church. And we said, no, we're going to keep planting churches. But we're not discipling anybody, then we divide those five at each campus, and we got two and a half at each church. They got a bun in the oven. And uh, do you understand what I'm saying? If you do not have a healthy church that is renewed, that is revived, that is discipling people, that people are coming into maturity, church planting just becomes division. We need church renewal. We need to reestablish the heart of the Great Commission, which is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And it's hard work. It's not as easy as putting on services and just hoping that people are going to show up to services. You know, that worked 20 years ago because we lived in this nominal Christian society where people would just show up at church. They would assume Christian values. We do not have that anymore. The, The Times are changing. The cultures are changing. So SunWest exists to guide all people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus. That's our mission statement. That is our earth in the window. That is how we've expressed the Great Commission and the Great Commandment in a way that is us. So I hope you can see that in that statement. We exist to guide all people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. It articulates loving God, loving neighbor, and the Great Commission of making disciples. So that piece is unchanging. That is our anchor point. That is the earth in the window. Sunless is a mission statement. We are a multi-campus church family committed to equipping and releasing individuals to fulfill God's missions, mission in the communities he places us. Now, there's a lot of debate and conversation that I've heard over the years about what's the difference between a mission statement and a vision statement. And, you know, at my work, we call a vision statement this and a mission statement this and blah, blah, blah. I don't really care what you do at your work, but let me just say this. that the mission, that this statement is the piece that is unchanging for us. This will not change. This is who we are. The great commandment, the great commission is what every follower of Jesus is called to. The vision statement is our understanding about how we are going to go about doing that. Now, I want to point out something that's been challenging. In our vision statement, we actually have a model that is incorporated in our vision statement. Do you see it? We're a multi-campus church family committed to equipping and releasing individuals to fill God's missions in the community where he places us. I want to talk very briefly about the idea of multi-campus. The heart of multi-campus has always been at SunWest the heart of multiplication. We embraced the model of multi-campus because we believed that this was the best way that we could go about multiplying disciples We're multiplying disciples. We planted Mackenzie Campus over 10 years ago. Trying to get my dates right, um, and uh, and the plan was to do more multi campuses, to have more campuses, and the heart of that is good. The heart of multiplication is good, but I would say the challenge that faces Sun West is not a challenge of making more campuses, but a challenge of making disciples who make disciples. And I I believe that this model is actually clouded our understanding of what we're supposed to be about. So don't hear me wrong. I do see a church that plants more campuses. I do see a church that plants more churches. But I believe that church planting, reproducing congregations is the natural growth of a discipling community. So is multi-campus the point? I would say no. It's a vehicle. It's a model. It's a way of multiplying. And I don't want to spend significant time on this. Uh, There's more information that's been out there on this. We're voting on potential structures on March 4th. And, you know, even whatever we decide on the structure is, is really irrelevant to me. The point is, do our current structures and models help us Make disciples who make disciples who make disciples or has the model that we've been kind of holding up as a vision become a distraction to being about the things that we're actually called to be about our question needs to be how do we live out our mandate to guide all people into a lifelong authentic relationship with jesus that is what we need to wrestle with with our vision how do we disciple disciples who disciple disciples the church i see is going to be about multiplication Multi-campus is one vehicle that moves us towards multiplication. Uh, You know, at the back today, Murray, where's your son left? But Murray was doing, uh, um, he, he was doing media today with his son Colin, which I love. Media becomes a vehicle for multiplication. Do you guys see that? Murray brings his son to work on the computer with him and they are actually participating in faith, communing together, along with everything else that Murray does as a father to make a disciple out of a son. But this is one aspect of it. So we celebrate that as a form of multiplication. Multiplication can look like a lot of different things. But multi is one vehicle towards corporate multiplication. If it's effective, let's do it. But if it's deterring us, deterring us from what we're supposed to be about, shouldn't we reevaluate whether or not the structure is helping or hindering us do the mission that God's calling us to? So I believe that church planting or multi-campus is a great church planting strategy. It's way better than it used to be. You know, when Willie started SunWest, our former lead pastor, our founding pastor, it was basically like, hey, Willie, here's some money from the conference. We're going to pray for you. Good luck. There's a bunch of churches that were planted in that time. I think there's about five or six. SunWest is the only one of those five or six campuses churches that were planted that has survived. All the others have closed their doors. And so multi-campus is great because it actually allows you to plant churches and resource churches with the capacity uh, from day one to do things that you couldn't otherwise do as a starting church plant. But is it effective for the long term? Should a church that's a multi-campus always be a multi-campus church? So I I just kind of offer that as food for thought. Our model is about the mission. And the most important thing is disciple is to create a discipling movement. And I believe that the problem that's facing North America is not one of church planning, but one of discipleship. We have churches full of nominal Christians, and I don't think that we need more churches full of nominal Christians. We need churches full of disciples who are making disciples. Okay. Um, I'm not going to spend a, any, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this. I've, I've, I've taught on this concept before, uh, but we talk about physical reproduction. And the Bible uses physical maturity as a metaphor, or language to help us understand discipleship. But, we, uh, but I think it'll be helpful moving forward to continue to revisit the idea of uh, these physical birth stages. So we have pre-birth. This is a non-disciple, has not been born again, is a person that's moving away from Jesus. They don't have faith in Jesus. And there's a point of birth, which I refer to as being born again, as, as it's referred to in, in John, when uh, Jesus talking to Nicodemus. This is the point at which one decides to turn around and follow Jesus. This was my grade eight Turtle Mountain Bible Camp, Neil Klippenstein moment. Has an encounter with God, becomes aware of sin and becomes aware of grace, receives grace and forgiveness, and makes Jesus Lord. A point of spiritual birth, coming into a family, not because of, uh, because of physical blood, but because of the blood of Jesus. Then we have an infant, excited to learn. They're typically having a spiritual high as they experience new life for the first time. They announce their new faith to their friends, and often people that just come to faith are the people that share the gospel or the good news most, most freely. They announce new faces of friends and anyone who will listen, oblivious to what this new world is all about, driven by a need for instant gratification, can use others as an object to meet their needs, unaware of how their behavior is affecting or hurting others, are often perceived as inconsiderate, insensitive, and self-centered. You know, if you have infants, you're like, you know, their world does not stop when you get home from work, does it? They don't say, hey, Dad, how was your day? They don't, they don't really care. Um, it's about them. They need to be nurtured, comforted, protected. They're watching and they're observing everything. They're learning to speak and understand God. They're learning to pray. They're dependent on others, primarily parents, which we'll get to in a second. A child understands the basic language of faith. They're learning to feed themselves and become less dependent on others. They can be rebellious and self-centered. Their right, the right behavior is motivated by rewards or threats. And so you hear that in people's language, right? Like, like for some people, like the threat of not getting things right is, is, super, is super intense, right? Then that's, that's okay. That's part of growing up. That's part of understanding right behavior. Content when things are going well. Discontent when disappointed. There's dis- disagreements are personal offenses, so they can be easily hurt by others. They complain when they don't get what they want. And then hopefully a child can move into adolescenthood where they're eager to serve, their independence is increasing. Uh, They have a high value in independence. They need to learn responsibility or how to care for the needs of others. You know, when I get babysitters for my kids, I don't get children to babysit them. I I usually don't get other parents, but I get teenagers because they're kind of at the stage where they can take on a little bit more responsibility, but they're not quite at the stage where they're taking care of their own kids, right? So this is like the uh, discipleship stage of adolescence. They're moving from self-centered to God-focused and other-centered. You can't they're not yet reproducing disciples who make disciples. They serve intentionally but don't make disciples intentionally. They want independence and should have it in some cases but also need continued parenting and coaching. They still need a curfew. They still need some uh, some boundaries from their parents. They're becoming increasingly motivated by what is internal rather than what is external. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They can become defensive when offered constructive criticism. They're moving from receiving to giving. And then you have parents. They're able to reproduce disciples who make disciples. They recognize the importance of inter- interdependence and community. They respect and love others without feeling like it's up their job to change everybody. They don't expect anyone to be perfect in meeting their needs. They appreciate people for who they are as whole individuals. They take responsibility for thoughts, feelings, goals, actions. They don't, fall victim, they don't fall into a victim mentality or a blame game when things are stre- stressful or things don't happen quite the way they wanted. They can state beliefs and values to those who disagree with them without becoming adversarial. They accurately self-assess their limits, their strengths, and their weaknesses. They're in tune with their own emotions and feelings. They're convinced that they are absolutely loved by Christ and have nothing to prove. They understand that the church isn't primarily for them, that they are the church. This is the growth of a disciple. And I would say that SunWest historically kind of just functions in this world right here. I don't know how you would say this. Is just my, this is just my gut saying that that we have or that we will need to in the future learn how to grow and release people from childhood to adolescence and from adolescenthood to parenthood because we don't want church to become a spectator sport. We want to see the saints of God released for the, with their God-given gifts, God-given callings. We want to see disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples and is not dependent on any one person. We want to see parents that are discipling their spiritual kids and that are giving them enough responsibility to grow up and become disciples themselves who will eventually disciple others. The church I see is a church where every person sees themselves as a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples. I see a church where every person has the ability to self-assess their own maturity. I see a church where individuals aren't okay with just staying where they are and they aren't okay with the status quo. I see a church that because they're not okay with the status quo, they live with an urgency and a discipline in order to become more like Jesus. I see a church that isn't just interested in convincing nominal Christians to attend services, but is interested in seeing people who are far from Jesus encounter him and follow him. I see a church where maturity is marked by reproduction. I see a church that is growing not because we're shuffling saints, but because people are stepping into their God-given mandate to make disciples who will make disciples who will make disciples. I see a church that is planting other churches. We are planting churches because we are making disciples. We are planting churches because there is renewal, revival, and growth. I see a church that will not desire to build its own fame through accumulation, but will make famous the name of Jesus through multiplication. This is the church I see.